You're listening to the Expert on Europe podcast by UACs, the membership association for contemporary European studies. We're here today with Clive Church, Emeritus Professor at the University of Kent. Clive, how did your academic interest in Swiss history and politics begin and how did it develop? As a combination of serendipity and market failure, really. I uh, was living in Italy in 1971 doing a book on 1830 and I went to Switzerland because there had been events there and by chance I met the right people and did a lot of work in a couple of days uh, and I found the country's history fascinating. I realised I knew absolutely nothing about it and I moved on to ideas of doing a history of Switzerland because there hadn't been one for some time. But then when I got known for working on Switzerland, all sorts of other offers came, um, often through through UACs, for conferences on EFTA and things like that, uh, and also on, on the Greens. And as I was then moving into politics, uh, the Greens were useful as a sort of lever. So that was the serendipity side of it. But the, the, the market failure was that virtually nobody else is interested. I mean, when people say, why Switzerland? I say, well, somebody has to, because it's an important country. It's the richest country in the world per capita at the moment. It's right at the centre of Europe. You, know, you, you have to go a long way around if you don't go through the Gotthard. And uh, there was no other academic in England really working on Switzerland. The, the late Christopher Hughes really, although he kept some interest, was was no longer active. So lots of people who wanted to know about Switzerland turned to me. So I tried to make up for the market. And I think the other thing is that it's uh, a much misunderstood country. I mean, not in the sense that, you know, people accuse it of the wrong sort, doing the wrong sort of thing, but people really have very little understanding of it. There's always been a role for someone to to explain it in more detail. So on the topic of understanding or misunderstanding Mm. of Switzerland, what kind of comparisons with Switzerland did you see being made during and after the UKU referendum? Well, there were a lot of contradictory elements in in Switzerland and the the Brexit debate. I mean, many Brexiteers Mm. see Switzerland as a natural ally. Why? Because it's not in the EU, because it has a strong anti-European forces and it has lots of what the Swiss would call votations or referenda. It has similar ideas on independence, particularly on judicial freedom, and its prosperity shows many, or, or suggests to many, that being inside the European Union is not the best way to be rich. The fact that Switzerland is rich actually has historic and other roots. It, it's not a pure product of not being in, inside the EU. And there were you know, some expressions of support for, for Brexit in Switzerland. There have been a number of min- visits to ministers um, here. But um, very often, even the people who like Switzerland and, and, and take this point of view, I mean, there, uh, there are people who are telling you that Switzerland is an associate member. There are people who tell you that Switzerland is in the EEA, which is neither of which are true. And I think, you know, they overlook the close ties with the EU, which Switzerland has. It's in Schengen. It tends to autonomously adopt large numbers of uh, European laws. I mean, since... I think it's 1988, 
it has been a rule that all Swiss legislation must be Euro-compatible. Now, they're not not members, but they uh, align themselves and they make payments uh, into the EU budget. Not as much as we do, uh, but they still do put money in. And all of that is really anathema to to British Europhobes. And, of course, there are some... um, Brexiteers who are worried about what they see as the Swiss trap. And what they mean by the Swiss trap is that the first group of bilateral deals which the Swiss signed at the end of the 1990s with the EU are all tied together. And this was because of one rather bright Irishman who used to work for the Bank of International Settlements in Basel and was hired by the community to do, or the union, to work on Switzerland for them. And he came up with what is usually called the guillotine principle. It's actually more of a tripwire, uh, because what it says is if the Swiss turn down one of the seven or eight deals, all of them fall. And of course, the you know Europhobes wanting to preserve their independence d- uh, don't want that. And of course, you know, there's, there's a lot of slightly misplaced admiration for de- direct democracy, misplaced in the sense that it's taken out of context. They don't understand that Swiss political culture is actually very different from the British because there is a complete and utter separation between government formation and a referendum in Switzerland. Government is elected every four years by the whole of the two houses together so that if the government opposes a proposal comes from the people, the electorate ignores it. It merely probably curses under its breath but then gets on and does what they've been told to do. And uh, the last time anybody effectively resigned from government because their proposal had been turned down was in 1953. And it turned out to be extraordinarily self-defeating and it hasn't been repeated. So those are the kinds of comparisons which I think were made um, during the referendum campaign after. So you've already touched on why some of those were mistaken. More specifically, why can't... Switzerland's relationship with the EU be a model for the UK? Well, there are a variety of reasons. Uh, first of all, of course, that Mrs May has said that she doesn't want an, what she calls an off-the-peg deal. She wants a bespoke one, uh, which, of course, rules Switzerland out as a matter of principle, you know, irrespective of its actual relations. The second problem is that Swiss relations are not really a model in the sense of one coherent, thought-out consciously created deal. They are a historical assemblage. They've grown over time. And there are, as going back to the 1971 free trade agreement, and there are over a hundred specific special individual deals which have been signed at various times over. And of course, none of those deals really include services, which is something which, you know, given that 80% of the British economy is is service orientated, makes it less attractive. Moreover, the, the Swiss system of relations, which they tend to call bilateralism, is actually contested at home, and it has its own difficulties. The uh, EU thinks it's too static, too complicated, and too uncertain legally. The question of who pronounces if there's a problem, a dispute, uh, has not been resolved. And I think also, although um, people talk about Switzerland as being, uh, you know, similar and wanting what what the English want, which is what was called a line gang, going it alone. Swiss, the Swiss are a nationalistic people, but their nationalism in foreign policy terms 
Democrats is essentially one of neutrality. And the most extreme nationalists in Switzerland are the most extreme neutralists. Now, Britain has been an imperial great power, and quite clearly it would be looking, uh, after 2019, it would be looking to play an important role in the way the Swiss would never dream because their their conception of their national identity and national foreign policy is a much more discreet one. And I think one should also not overlook the fact that Brexit has caused difficulties for the Swiss. Politically, it's meant to delay, that they probably would have got a new deal. They need new deals, and they probably would have gotten them by now, but for the British because the, uh, partly the, the European Union concentrates on the bigger state and partly because it doesn't want to concede something to Switzerland now, which might be an embarrassment when it's negotiating with Britain. And uh, it, it also, I think, probably uh, feels that being slightly tough on Switzerland is a useful warning uh, for the British. And economically, there are difficulties because Switzerland is probably quite low on the list of countries to be invited to sign deals with uh, the UK after we leave, so that there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think they also feel that if we're not inside the European banking system, we're going to be outside, and we are will become much more rivals for UBS and, uh, and Credit Suisse as being non-EU banking centres. So they're worried about that. And of course, Switzerland is a very large investor in the UK. And of course, the returns on its investments are going down. Already gone down 20% because of the decline of sterling. So, you know, for all those reasons, if you look at it in in the abstract, you know, you you can't really copy Switzerland, at least in, in content terms. What lessons can be taken for the future of well, UK relations? Well, I think I probably can't copy the Swiss approach and the Swiss con- content, but the uh, structurally, in, in, in terms of process, the UK is in actually much the same situation as Switzerland is. To begin with, that they're negotiating one against 27, and that there is an implicit power problem there. They're um, also looking... For sectoral advantage. Now, we may look for advantage in different sectors, but uh, the same thing is true. You want to get the best deal for where you have um, comparative advantage. We're in the same position as the Swiss in the sense that any moves towards the EU are contested internally, uh, and that is likely to go on being the case, I think. And, uh, you know, both countries have rejected the EEA on sovereignty grounds because the the Swiss signed up to it in principle in 1991, but they said it is really not consonant with the the dignity and honour of an independent country because you essentially become mere absorbers uh, of EU regulation. And I think the same problem uh, applies to the British. And, you know, the the Swiss then, uh, having crumpily signed up to the EEA, then applied for membership. Uh, And it's only... Uh, a few months ago, they actually formally withdrew the membership application. And there are, I think, a number of technical questions which the British are going to say. That everyone talks about a deal, but hang on. Are you talking about a deal as things are now, or are you talking about a deal that evolves? Because, like it or like it not, the EU is a, a law-producing 
policy-producing body, and its policies change. Uh, and one of the problems the Swiss have is that many of their deals uh, are based on law as it was in, in 1999. But, of course, the present reality is somewhat different. And that's why the EU is, is pressing for this kind of framework deal, which will automatically upgrade and update. I haven't heard that discussed anywhere in, in Britain. I mean, I may have missed it. I'm quite prepared to. I'm not following all that closely. But that's going to be a major issue. You're not just doing a deal for now. You're going to do a deal which, if you're a good Brexiteer, you want to last. And that means that you will have to answer this question about how do you keep up with EU policy changes, particularly EU policy changes, which may not be the ones which it would have had if Britain's still been in there contributing to the policy debate. There's also this question of legal certainty. And that there has been discussion of, about who adjudicates when there is a disagreement on uh, on one of the deals. And there's also going to be this question, which I don't think has been looked at in governance terms in the UK. If you have a number of sectoral deals, as I think is likely, how do you coordinate them? That will force the British to rethink some of their own governance arrangements. So all these things have applied in the Swiss situation and I think will apply to the British, but have not really been appreciated. And as to the referendum lessons, um, the Swiss system of direct democracy is much admired by Europhobes like Daniel Hannan and, and Douglas Carswell, but that's somewhat self-interested. And they don't come to terms with the fact that I, I said earlier that the Swiss system works as well as it does because of this separation of government formation and policymaking. Obviously, David Cameron believed that uh, this was not the case. He told the world that he would stay in office, whatever the decision was. How many hours was it before he stepped down? Twelve? Because in the British system, you know, accountability focuses on the people at the top. And it's quite impossible. You've lost all your status and credibility if something as important as this is defeated. Now, in Switzerland where you don't have a coalition, you have an assemblage of, of ministers working together. This is just not the problem, because it may be that one minister was in favour of this uh, vote, the others may not have been. So there's no reason why they should stay down, and nobody expects them. I've never in my, oh gosh, nearly 50 years watching Switzerland, I've never known a situation where people have said, you've got to go, because you've lost. They, they will say, well, actually, the government didn't come out well out of that. It lost four out of five. But it never occurs to people to say, well, they better, better resign. And also, they're much more flexible about referendum. I mean, a, a lot of the argument in the UK at the moment is that the 23rd of June 2016 was a kind of golden calf. It was, as the French would say, it was beyond the thing. And it's the one thing you must never touch that the people have spoken, Swiss don't think like that. You often find that policy gets turned down in November, and by the following May, they're collecting signatures for another way of doing it. A great example of that is women's uh, suffrage. Turned down in 59, gets through in 71. And, the, you know, they regard that direct democracy as educational, whereas we don't, I think. So I think, you know, the simple judgments are best avoided, but there are there's more resemblance than people often realise 
but it's not the resemblances which have often come out in debate. And I think also the one, one final point, you're looking ahead, there's a, an example from British-EU relations in the past, which is people have never touched on. And that is before Delors started talking about a new relationship with EFTA, which led to the EA, there had been what was known as the Luxembourg process, in which the EU, well, the EC as it then was, promised to look at the issues of affecting EFTA when they were making decisions. And of course, they never really did, because as somebody said, you know, you've been going for 18 hours in the negotiation, and if someone gets up and said, what about EFTA? They said, bugger, let's go for a drink. Um, and that, I think, is, is likely to be a problem faced by the British, that they may think they have a relationship. But given the differences amongst the 27, when they have spent two days arguing, if someone says, shouldn't we worry about the British? And the answer is, yeah, but the day after tomorrow. Thank you very much for your time. For more UAC's podcasts, visit uaces.org forward slash podcast and don't forget to subscribe for new episodes.